G'day everyone, I'm your mate Nate. Strap yourself in for your weekly dose of money, politics and truth. Together, we look at high-impact stories that you may have heard of, but have never truly been told. From historic Kerry Packer tales to longer deep dives into the true origins of the welcome to country phenomenon. I'm your mate Nate, and get ready to rethink the way you look at the world around you. You watched Oppenheimer, didn't you? Do you remember that scene when everything goes dead silent as Oppenheimer's bomb detonates? Even if you didn't watch the movie, thousands of tests just like this were carried out by America, the Soviet Union, and other countries in the decades following the Manhattan Project. In 1952, the United Kingdom became the third country to harness the explosive power of nuclear energy, but the POMs needed somewhere to test their weapons. As England's former convict outpost with vast expanses of land far from watchful eyes, Australia was the perfect place. The UK conducted 12 major nuclear weapons tests on Australian territory between 1952 and 1963, and another 600 highly confidential minor trials during this period. You've probably heard about the Chernobyl radiation no-go zones where wild plants and mutant animals are said to breed, but did you know that Australia has its own radioactive wastelands too? Or that a nuclear bomb twice the size of the one dropped on Hiroshima was dropped from a balloon in the Aussie outback? From an eight-week bomb ferrying voyage to the other side of the world, to indigenous communities being drowned in toxic black mist, I'm your mate Nate. And today, we get to the bottom of Australia's dark nuclear testing history. Before we get to Australia, we need to understand some context. During the Second World War, scientists from America and Britain joined forces on the Manhattan Project, leading to the creation of the nuclear bombs that the US dropped on Japan in 1945. The detonations demonstrated America's newfound hegemonic power and Britain's relative decline. Keen on restoring its powerful stature on the global stage after the bloodbath of World War II and amid the onset of the Soviet threat, Britain launched its own nuclear research program. The POMs had the brains, but they needed somewhere to blow up the bombs. They first asked the Canadians and Americans to use remote areas of their lands for testing that were knocked back. But in Australia, the Chifley and then Menzies governments were only so keen to lend support. In 1946, discussions between British and Australian leaders led to an agreement to set up a 480-kilometre rocket range extending northwest from Mount Eber in South Australia, although it was later relocated to Woomera, some three hours south. But Woomera was only a rocket testing range. It wasn't where the British wanted to test their new nukes. That was at a few different locations, the first being the Montebello Island, Islands, an archipelago around 170 islands off the northwest coast of Australia. On the 16th of September 1950, a member of the UK's High Commission to Australia presented Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies with a cable from British PM Clement Attlee asking to use the Montebello Islands as a testing ground to detonate a few nuclear bombs. Paul Grace, author of Operation Hurricane, states that Menzies was positively enthusiastic about the idea and agreed without consulting his cabinet. Menzies eagerly accepted the proposal, making no demands and setting no conditions of any kind. He even volunteered to pay for Australia's entire contribution to the project, even though Attlee had not asked him to. So, Attlee locked in the Montebello Islands. But Australia was on the other side of the world. So how were the POMs going to get the bomb here safe and sound? 
The bomb was assembled at Foulness Island, a closed island off the coast of Essex in England, and then placed on the HMAS Plym for transport to Australia. Accompanied by a fleet, the Plym took eight weeks to reach the Montebello Islands, sailing around the Cape of Good Hope rather than the shorter route through the Suez Canal due to political unrest in Egypt. However, the radioactive components of the bomb were not on the ship, but rather transported by air. The plutonium core and the neutron initiator were flown from RAF Lynham Air Force Base near Swindon in England to Singapore, making fuel stops in Cyprus, the United Arab Emirates, and Sri Lanka. From Singapore, the nuclear materials were boarded on a different plane for the final leg to Western Australia, a trip totaling over 30,000 kilometres. And so at 8am on Friday, the 3rd of October 1952, Britain's first nuclear bomb was detonated aboard the HMS Plym, vaporising the vessel and creating a monstrous mushroom cloud that billowed into the West Australian sky. The next day, the West Australian newspaper reported the following. At first, deep pink, it quickly changed to mauve in the centre, with pink towards the outside and brilliantly white turbulent edges. Within two minutes, the cloud, which was still like a giant cauliflower, was 10,000 feet high. Derek Hickman, an engineer who witnessed the blast aboard the HMS Zeebrug, told the Mirror newspaper, They ordered us to muster on deck and turn our backs. We put our hands over our eyes and they counted down over the loudspeaker. There was a sharp flash and I could see the bones in my hands like an x-ray. Then the sound and the wind and they told us to turn and face it. The bomb was in the hull of a 1,450-ton warship, and all that was left of her were a few fist-sized pieces of metal that fell like rain, and the shape of the frigate scorched on the seabed. The British detonated two more nuclear bombs at the Montebello Islands four years later, but they weren't satisfied with the maritime explosions. They wanted hard soil too. Operation Totem took place in October 1953 at Emu Field in South Australia. The Brits wanted to test more bombs, and this time they were interested in a specific element, plutonium-240, a more capricious isotope than plutonium-239, which they'd used in previous bombs. British scientists wanted to see how much more punch it could pack. The nukes at Emu Field were dropped from 90-metre-high steel towers, similar to the ones in Oppenheimer, but three times the height. One particularly remarkable story emerged from Emu Field. Amidst the nuclear theatre of the first blast, an Australian MK3 Centurion tank weathered the apocalyptic fury. Positioned a mere 460 metres from the explosion, the tank endured the atomic blast. Its metal frame withstood the shockwave, albeit pushed back by a metre and a half. Its antenna gone, lights sandblasted, armoured side plates blown off, and a cloak of radiation enveloping it. Yet after refueling, it roared back to life, driving away from the test site on its own engine. But the phenomenal feats of the nuke-proof tank didn't end there. It went on to be deployed in the Vietnam War, and on May 7, 1969, withstood an RPG straight to its chassis. The turret crew was wounded, yet the tank remained operational throughout the firefight. Shipped back to Australia and rejuvenated, it eventually found solace in retirement as a venerable relic at Robinson Barracks at Palmerston in the Northern Territory. This tank was certainly one of a kind. The blast at Emu Field decimated everything in the surrounding area, and even more than 60 years on, the vegetation is cleared in a perfect circle with a one kilometre radius. 
Today, a stone monument sits at the test site and reads, Warning, Radiation Hazard. Radiation levels for a few hundred metres around this point may be above those considered safe for permanent occupation. Plutonium-240 definitely packed some punch, but Emu Field was just a warm-up. The mother of all Britain's bombs was dropped four years later, about a three-hour drive south at a place called Maralinga, which means thunder in the local Yungu language. In 1956, British and Australian officials built a test site and airstrip at Maralinga, which they called Section 400. The Brits wanted to test out a new warhead called Redbeard. It weighed one-fifth of the previously used Blue Danube warhead, but still held considerable explosive power. Seven tests took place at Maralinga between 1956 and 63. Four nukes were dropped from towers, two dropped from balloons, and one was dropped from an RAF plane. The balloons brought their own unique challenges. Australian officials were concerned about a nightmare scenario where, if the wind picked up, a runaway balloon carrying a live atomic bomb would float towards towns and cities. Procedures were put in place to prevent this fate, including shooting down the balloon if it came to it. Despite these risks, it was from a balloon that the British dropped their biggest bomb. Maralinga got real thunderous on October the 9th, 1957, when a bomb twice the size of that dropped on Hiroshima was detonated. It produced a mushroom cloud up to 47,000 feet high, engulfing the horizon in an atomic plume of smoke. It was an awesome sight to witness, but toxic nuclear material was contained within these towering plumes, which would have devastating consequences in the years to come. In September 2023, a class action was launched by Australian nuclear test veterans against the British government to claim compensation for health conditions they believe developed as a result of them witnessing the nuclear tests. This isn't the first time attempts have been made to seek compensation over Britain's nuclear tests. In 2010, British nuclear test veterans sued the British government for damages pertaining to adverse health conditions, but the British Supreme Court ruled that the veterans were unable to file for compensation from the UK Ministry of defence because too much time had passed since the tests and complaints go back much further. In the 1980s, pressure from Australian military personnel and Indigenous tribes forced the Australian government to launch the McClellan Royal Commission. After a year of investigations, the panel handed down its verdict in 1985, noting that many people experienced radioactive fallout from Operation Totem in the form of a black mist or cloud, which may have made some people temporarily ill, but there was insufficient evidence to say whether or not it caused other illnesses or injuries. However, the Commission also found that the safeguards against radiation exposure for nuclear personnel were totally inadequate, even by the best practice standards of the 1950s, and that it is probable that the rate of cancers that occurred subsequent to the atomic tests in Australia would not have otherwise occurred were it not for the fallout from the tests. Paul Grace's investigation into the Montebello Island tests present damning findings on the lack of protections provided to service personnel. Unlike the British scientists who were equipped with protective gear, the soldiers, sailors and aircrew at Montebello were not given such provisions. The ships, planes and other equipment used in the tests were exposed to radiation and would transport the radiation to new sites. And get this, the seawater contaminated with radiation was desalinated to provide showers and drinking water for British naval personnel. So every single seaman involved in the Montebello tests bathed in and drank contaminated water. 
It's difficult to conclusively state whether the adverse health conditions experienced by service personnel have been a result of radiation exposure, but Sue Roth, a researcher at the University of Dundee in Scotland, began digging into medical records of servicemen and their families. Specifically, she looked at the health conditions of the British, Australian and New Zealand personnel and a small Fijian contingent present at many blasts. While British authorities had always presented a sanguine view of the health burden carried by nuclear veterans, many veterans and their families believe the radiation exposure had made them more susceptible to adverse health conditions. So Roth decided to look into the matter, and what she found was astounding. From a test sample of 2,500 men of the almost 40,000 who witnessed the blasts, she found 30% of them had already died, mostly in their 50s, with two-thirds of them dying from cancer. Many of them couldn't father children after they returned from the tests, and among the nearly 5,000 children and grandchildren of this group of more than 1,000 veterans, there are 26 cases of spina bifida alone, more than five times the usual rate for live births in the UK. Almost half the offspring of the veterans in the sample had dermatological, musculoskeletal, and gastrointestinal conditions from which many of the men have also suffered. Roth notes, among the 2,261 children of the 1,041 veterans, more than 200 skeletal abnormalities were reported, including more than 30 cases of short stature and 18 spinal problems, numbers wildly inconsistent with the normal population. One Australian serviceman reported his wife had six miscarriages and their son developed leukemia and passed away at age 42. So Britain's nuclear tests in Australia not only devastated the wildlife from which the Montebello Islands has only just begun to recover its natural flora and fauna and created debilitating health conditions for thousands of servicemen and indigenous peoples, but have also created significant intergenerational health problems. Were there safeguards in place at the time? During the tests, British officials oftentimes dismissed the concerns of Australian representatives about radiation poisoning with assurances that all precautions were taken and there was no need to worry. One British official said the risk associated with nuclear blasts were no greater than the risk caused by gunnery practice. The Montebello Islands remained a prohibited area until 1992, some 40 years after the explosions. Even to this day, signs on the Montebello Island warn visitors about the dangers of high radiation levels, and visitors are advised not to spend more than one hour per day at Tremuli and Alpha Islands, the islands that were closest to the blasts. Britain conducted two ineffectual cleanups of Maralinga in the 1960s. The proper cleanup between 1995 and 2000 cost more than $100 million, of which Australia paid $75 million. It has left an artificial hill in the desert containing 400,000 cubic metres of plutonium-contaminated soil. The local Maralinga indigenous people received $13 million in compensation for the loss of their land, which was finally returned to them in 1984. Aussie music legends Paul Kelly and Midnight Oil even wrote songs about the health problems caused by the Maralinga tests. The full story of what happened at Maralinga, the Montebello Islands and Emu Field and the harm the nuclear tests have caused people and the wildlife remains to be told. Britain still maintains a strict control over information pertaining to nuclear operations. The vacuum in the documentary record, writes Elizabeth Tynan, who authored the book Atomic Thunder, represents the very worst impulses of the British government to control, deny and cover up its activities, even retrospectively and in relation to Australian territory where Australians were affected. Once a dumping ground for Britain's murderers and thieves, 
Australia became its testing site for nuclear weapons. Many decisions were made during the heat of the Cold War that contemporary onlookers now condemn with the luxury of hindsight. But the physical scars of the tests in the bodies of veterans, indigenous peoples and their offspring undoubtedly bear a tragic legacy that radiates to this very day. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're a new listener, we've got episodes coming out every Tuesday and Thursday morning. Can't wait to catch you in the next one, guys.